Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Help us to know your word and follow it and follow you. You are worthy. Help us to find rest in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you guys have seen the movie Pollyanna? How many don't want to admit it? <laughs> okay. Uh, Pollyanna is someone who sees through rose-colored lenses everything that she saw, right? She breaks an arm. She's like, well, I got two of them. It's okay. She loses a kidney. No problem. I've got a spare. And the tulips are blossoming, you know. She always tries to find the positive to focus on ignoring the negative. The Apostle Paul was not like that. And we Christians shouldn't be either. Now, what do I mean? I mean that we're not simply supposed to think about positive things and, and ignore the negative things. We are supposed to see clearly all things, positive and negative, in the light of Christ, the greatest reality. Bear with me. I want to flesh this out this morning. We're back in Ephesians this morning after a short break for the Easter season. And to catch us all up, let me do a little bit of a recap and get us back to where we were. Paul had just laid out for the Gentile Christians in Ephesus the powerful truth that in Christ, because of Christ's work on the cross, there is peace now that exists between God and believing humans and there is peace between Jews and Gentiles. Now, in some ways, that second part was a bigger shocker than the first. Because the hostility between Jews and Gentiles was really deep. Human brokenness, human division, enmity, hostility between or toward one another. This was deep, and it's still deep today. Paul laid this out. He said, Christ is our peace both horizontally, but also vertically. He makes us one with each other, Jews and Gentiles, all tribes, tongues, nations, and he reconciles us to God. Now, how did he do that? Well, he broke down the law that divided us. He fulfilled the law. The law fulfilled its purpose as Christ fulfilled it. He took our punishment, he lived out perfection, and in union with him, we also have union with everyone else that's in him. Now Paul emphasized that we get this in Christ and only in Christ. We have access now, Jew, Gentile, anyone who is in Christ has access to the Father in one spirit. He says that Holy Spirit dwells in every believer regardless of their ethnic background. Paul emphasized further that in Christ, all of us who are Christians are built up together into a dwelling place for God. Remember, he said that we are the temple of God. We're no longer Jew nor Gentile. We're a third race, Christian. Beloved, you have to understand, this was unparalleled. This is incredible news for them. Because the temple... The Jewish temple was their most sacred space. Gentiles were kept out. Now Paul's saying that not only are they not being kept out, but together with believing Jews, Gentiles are the temple. 
of the living God. We said that we Christians are the presence of God on this earth. And we're going to talk about this some, but, but the way we live and act as a church is a reflection of the presence of God to those who are looking on and watching us. It's powerful stuff that Paul's laying out there for us. It's mind-boggling. It's life-transforming. It's, it's the kind of thing that if you get it, it changes everything. For those in the first century, though, I think what was most primarily mind-boggling was that it was unheard of that Jews and Gentiles would be together. They don't mix. For them to mix, the, the Gentile would have to convert to Judaism. And even then, they weren't really accepted. And now Paul's saying that not only do they mix, but in Christ, they are one and they are the glory of God on earth. So Paul turns to, to pray for the Ephesian Christians that these truths would be firmly and deeply established in their hearts and they would get it and they would live it. That's what he wants. And, and so he, he goes to pray and he gets distracted. Have you ever been distracted while praying? Never, right? Never. He gets distracted. What distracts him? He comes back to prayer, but he's distracted. Before he gets into his prayer, Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to see something different than what they've been seeing. He wants them to think differently. In fact, as I've said before, and I'm sure I'm going to say again, much of what the Lord does in the Scriptures is reshape our thinking. He helps us to reimagine life now with the lens of Christ, the lens of reality, God's reality. We are so bombarded, beloved, by the world's views constantly that we don't even realize the influence of what some have called the social imaginary on our lives. But Paul knew it, and he wants to reshape ours to be a biblical imaginary, as some have called it. Please open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read... 13 verses, verses 1 through 13. And out of what Paul is trying to communicate, we're going to find out what Paul is trying to communicate to the Ephesian Christians and to us. Hear now God's word, Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, 
so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Amen? I know it's a longer passage than you're used to, but we decided to end at 3 p.m. today. Um, Just kidding. I want to start with seeing why Paul digressed from praying for the Ephesians. Look at verse 1, and then again, I want you to look down at verse 13, because it's fascinating what happens. Most likely what's going on is Paul is reciting, he's dictating this letter to an amanuensis who's writing down for him as he's in prison, and he, he's getting excited as he's speaking. And so here's our first point. It's kind of the big, broad point for us to think about today. You can write it down in your notes. Don't lose heart see differently don't lose heart see differently know what paul is saying and and gets him distracted he's just laid out these deep theological realities he wants them to grasp it he's going to pray for them and he starts this way a prisoner of christ jesus on behalf of you gentiles really he's laying out how he views himself prisoner of christ for gentiles now the the ephesians are looking at this they're hearing this and they're thinking to themselves well no paul you're a prisoner of rome you're in jail yes because of us in some ways but you're a prisoner of rome He, he wrote this in what we think is his first imprisonment in rome but why was he there why was he in prison what was his crime He had angered the Jews in Jerusalem because he had been preaching Christ to the Gentiles. And he'd been preaching gospel and not law. In fact, since Paul would never insist that a Gentile be circumcised, and he even made the point in some of his letters that the external circumcision is meaningless, he was accused of being against the law of God. I don't know if you remember this, toward the end of the book of Acts, Paul was warned, don't go to Jerusalem. There was a prophet, Agabus, who took Paul's belt and he tied up his hands and his feet and he said, look, if you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. And Paul says, I don't care. Imprisonment was nothing to fear. He said he was so convinced that, that God wanted him to go to Jerusalem that he said to those that were saying, don't go to Jerusalem, he said, I don't care if I go to prison or if I even die for the name of Jesus. I am not afraid of suffering if it's for my Lord. He ends up going to Jerusalem. James meets with him, tells him, hey, look, the Jews here are not really happy with you. You know that. Why don't we do something to kind of alleviate that a little bit? James says, there's some of our our brothers, they're going to go, they have to pay their vow at the temple. Why don't you do this? Go purify yourself in the temple, pay the price of their vows, and then people will know that you're not against the law of Moses. They'll know that you're not against the law of God. That'll bring some peace. Paul does. But his reputation precedes him. 
The people mistakenly think that Paul is not taking four Jews along with him into the temple, but they believe that he's taking Gentiles along with him into the temple, which is so ironic based on what Paul is teaching here. They were not allowed in. Paul was arrested. Eventually, he ends up in, in Rome, long story short, waiting to come before Caesar. And that's where he's writing from. In other words, why is Paul in prison? Paul's in prison because he has been taking the gospel in its fullness to the Gentiles around the world, preaching Christ, not law. And so he's persecuted. And it seems that the Ephesian Christians know this. They understand that it's because he preached to people like them. And they're discouraged by this. They're discouraged that their their apostle is in, in prison. Look at verse 13. Paul writes, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Paul knew that there was this sense of discouragement and losing heart in the Ephesian Christians because they know that Paul's in prison for them. Why would they be discouraged by this? Well, look, think about it. If, if this is the apostle God has sent specifically for the Gentiles, and now he's locked up, what does that say about God's mission to the Gentiles? Is there something wrong? Is there a change of plan? They've been taught that God is in control. The Lord is in control of all things. They're run, wondering now, is Rome actually in control? This reminded me of the way the disciples reacted after the crucifixion. Is he really the Messiah? One author even suggested that they might have thought that the Roman gods and goddesses were the ones doing this to Paul. And they had left them to worship the one living God and maybe they had it all wrong. Maybe. But beloved, we know what that discouragement feels like. Don't we? Turn on the news. It's that how long, O Lord, feeling that we get. How long is it going to be so bad? Why does it keep getting worse and worse and worse? And then that how long, O Lord, feeling turns into are you really there, Lord, feeling? And then, worst case, have I believed in vain, Lord? Paul's saying here in this entire section, don't lose heart. You need to see differently. See differently. Not Pollyanna, but Paul. And note this, verse 13 begins with so, or therefore. It's a word that means, here's the conclusion to what I've been saying for you. If you understand what I've laid out, then you're not going to lose hope. So let's try and understand what Paul's laying out for them not to lose hope. It's a different way of seeing. That's what he lays out in verses 2 through 12. Here's the first different way of seeing things for Paul. Where we see prison, Paul sees privilege. You can put that in your notes. Where we see prison, Paul sees privilege. Look at verse 1 again. Paul makes this statement. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That says a lot. Beloved, Paul is not saying that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus in a negative way at all. To him, this is a place of pride prisoner of Christ Jesus. The one thing that's clear is Paul does not see himself as a prisoner of Rome. Not at all. That's not why he's there. 
He knows that if God desired for him to be elsewhere, he'd be elsewhere. Do you believe that? If God desired you to be elsewhere, you'd be elsewhere. He knows that the reason that he is in prison is that he has been doing the work of the Lord in evangelizing the Gentiles as sent by Christ himself, and the Christ who sends is not a Christ who forsakes. He will not. If I am here, my Lord knows I'm here. He has me here for a reason. It reminds me of what Paul says to the slaves later on in this very letter. He says, render service with a good will as to the Lord and not as unto men. In other words, we're not here to serve men. We're here to serve the Lord. And that's how Paul views even his imprisonment. But there's more. Look at verse 2. Paul basically says this. He's writing to them. He knows they're discouraged. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He goes, wait a minute. Maybe they don't understand this. Let me lay, them out, lay this out to you. Do you, Ephesians, realize how much insider information God has given to me? That's the Jason paraphrase. It's not a very literal translation. Okay. And, and by the way, this isn't insider information like Martha Stewart or you know, a Wall Street scam. This is insight into the plans of god look at it carefully verses two and onward insight into the heart of god insight that paul says in verse five look at it there was not made known to the sons of men and other generations no one else had understood the fullness of this he calls it in verse two the stewardship of god's grace given to me Paul is in awe. One author says that he is enraptured by this reality. You're worried about me suffering or me being in prison, but all I can think of is the privilege that I have to know the mysteries of God. Beloved, don't you realize what a privilege it is for us to know the mind and the plans of God, the heart of God in ways that so many people, even God's own people in history, did not know. Paul is so caught up in this privilege, the privilege to know the mystery of salvation, of God's plan of redemption. He is so aware of the kindness of this gift that imprisonment is reinterpreted in its light i'm christ's prisoner and what a privilege it is look at verses three and four paul saying i'm captive to a god who has revealed to me glorious truths about his world and his plans and his kindness and his wisdom and his grace and i can't even explain it it's so good paul's probably thinking about his own conversion in acts 9 when jesus appeared to him if you remember he was called saul at the time saul saul why are you persecuting me and then jesus reveals himself to paul and he reveals that he's called to go to the the gentiles that it's that this salvation is not just for the jews to go to the gentiles and paul understands this is a mystery that's revealed to him and by the way sometimes uh, we get excited about knowing things about important people right oh i i know that celebrity i know him well i know i know him personally paul's thrilled to know personally the secrets of jesus so to speak secrets that are made known though and meant to be preached paul has insider knowledge of the plans of god but he gets to share it look at verse six what's the mystery 
It's everything that we talked about in chapter 2. Gentiles are equal in the glorious plan of redemption with the Jews. There's no division any longer. Salvation is for all who come in faith. All those who believe are sons and daughters of Abraham. They're fellow heirs, fellow members of the same body, fellow partakers of the promise. In other words, there's no difference between the nations any longer. All can come to the Father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Don't forget, the Jews were waiting for a Jewish Messiah. Paul was caught up as a Pharisee in this small part of the world a small group of people in a small land. But God opened his eyes to see there is so much more. And suddenly all of Scripture started making more and more sense to Paul. Suddenly as Paul comes to understand that it's God's eternal plan, look at verse 11, it's his eternal plan to make Jew and Gentile one new man. So much more of the Old Testament Scriptures that he had studied all his life began to make sense. Now the Abrahamic promises take on new meaning. Now the Isianic prophecies become clear. Now the vastness of God's glorious plan is not just for one small group, but for the entire world. And all of this in Christ through the gospel. And Paul is given this knowledge by God's grace. He didn't discover it. He didn't find it. It was given to him. And Paul's in awe. Let me ask you, beloved, do you understand the privilege that we have to have God's Word in its fullness, to not live in an era of types and shadows and promises, instead to live in the time of substance and fulfillment? Listen, we were all, whether in the Old Testament or New, saved by Christ, but what a privilege that Christ has already come, and we get to see the fullness of God's plan. This was all given to Paul and the apostles, insight, truth, knowledge. We see prison, Paul sees privilege. We see prison, and Paul's going, this is, this is like the, the, I don't know, Grand Hyatt? I don't know, what's a good hotel for him? Because it's just privilege. Here's another thing Paul sees, where we see suffering, Paul sees mission. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. The, the privilege isn't just this knowledge of the gospel given to Paul. It's that that knowledge will go out through Paul to the world. The honor of this calling is not lost on Paul. Of this gospel, I get to be a minister? By the way, all by God's grace, I didn't earn it. What's more, it's, notice what verse 7 says, it's his power at work in me. Ephesians, you, you think I'm worried about suffering in prison? No. Prison is now a part of my mission. See, because Paul sees himself as captive to Christ wherever he is, that's the mission field. That's what God has him there for when he's free, he's on mission. When he's in prison, he's on mission. That's why in Philippians 1, he even says that what happened to him when he went to prison, he says, this imprisonment, it's really served the gospel well. 
says the whole guard has come to know that I'm here because of Christ. In other words, the whole guard has come to know about Christ. You, you think that Paul stopped talking about Jesus when he was in jail? No, they were a captive audience. They have to guard him. He goes before the governor and he evangelizes. Why would he be afraid to speak to a soldier about Jesus? This reminds me, beloved, of precious saints who use their times of sickness and even hospitalization not as a time to feel sorry for themselves, but a time for ministry in a new setting. I remember hearing about Pastor Jim Wilson, uh, Ararat's father-in-law, Sevan's grandfather. He's in the hospital and we're praying as a church for him. Lord, heal him, help him to feel better and get out and all this. And he has no concern whatsoever about getting out. He, he's not worried about his own health. You know what he kept asking for? Send more books, more pamphlets, more things for me to hand out to the nurses and the doctors and the staff and anyone else who comes by. Just give them the gospel, anyone, everyone, wherever I can. As long as the Lord has me here. We were seeing suffering. He was seeing mission. Look at verse 8. Paul's view of himself, why he understands such privilege that he has. He says, look guys, I'm the least. As a matter of fact, he uses a word, most likely Paul made this word up. If our children used it, we'd correct their grammar. The word is probably, should be translated, leaster. He says, I'm leaster. I'm, I'm less than the least of the saints. I'm, I'm the very least. Paul thinks of who he was. He persecuted the church. He, he hated Christians. He wanted them dead. Yet God graciously decided to use him for his mission. That's grace. And it's amazing. And, and beloved, if God can use a persecutor of Christians to declare Christ, he can certainly use you and me. I want you to notice two parts to this mission. We can't get into too much detail here, but verse 8, he was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9, he was to bring to light for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, the mystery. He was called on to make that glorious truth, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ by faith, known to the nations. That in Christ, and only in Christ, we can boldly and confidently come before the Father. No rituals, no laws, no sacrifices any longer. One sacrifice, Christ Jesus, for everyone. Come. That was Paul's view of himself. He's, he's the least, and so... Think about this, Paul's view of the message and the mission, it's the greatest. So God has given the greatest message to the leaster of saints. I think we can all say that together. He gets to declare the treasure of the gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ. He gets to bring to light to explain what the church really is and what God is doing in the world by bringing together a church in Christ, under Christ, under the blood of Christ, made up of every tongue, tribe, and nation. Men, women, slaves, free, all one in Christ. What is that? No human divisions any longer. Sinfully broken relationships mended. How? The God-man, Jesus Christ. And what's the purpose of the church? Take a look at verse 10. 
What's the end result? What is it that Paul is trying to declare and what God is doing in this bringing together of the church? So that through the church, now again, think Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, all together, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Can you imagine what Paul's saying here? He's saying that the spirit world, the, the wicked spirits in the heavenly realm are looking at the church and they're blown away because they could not figure out how God could bring together what they thought they had so nicely divided. Remember what the father of lies attempted to do. Paul's saying that the church, the united body of believers out of the divided body of the world reveals to the spiritual powers in heaven just how wise God is and just how badly they failed. They cannot stop God's good plans. Here's what one scholar wrote. I thought it was helpful. The church is unified across, across ethnic lines and is a newly created human being. By its very existence as a unified body then, the church makes known to the evil spiritual rulers and authorities the vastness of God's creative wisdom. He not only created the universe with its endless variety, but in a wholly surprising way, he has begun to restore the crowning achievement of his creation, humanity, to its original unity. Beloved, the church is a miracle. The church made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. When there is a oneness in Christ, when all around us the world is all divided, it declares to the living humans as well as to the spirit beings the wisdom of God. There's so much more we can talk about, so much that Paul is seeing here. He's seeing the reversal of the fall. He's seeing grace falling upon a people that his own people thought were not worthy. Of course not. The most vile, the most godless, that's us. But God's grace is bigger. He's seeing how suffering turns to glory, how the cross changed the future of all suffering, including his own. He's seeing, like Jesus, the joy set before him. Instead of the suffering only, he sees the outcome. I can endure suffering because I know what lies beyond it. And because of Jesus, there is something beyond suffering. Yes, he's in prison in Rome, but he can't wait to carry the gospel to Caesar. Here's my question, beloved. Imagine if we saw like Paul. Imagine if we grasped the glory of the good news of God's grace like Paul did and know these things. Our situation doesn't control us. The God of the situation does. And He has us here on a mission. Wherever you are, however you got there, God has you there. Our suffering doesn't hinder us. It gives us opportunity in a new context to declare the excellencies of God. We have gifts and a calling from God. We have purpose, like Paul, to declare the mysteries of Christ. 
We are not even nobodies. We're less. But we have a message about somebody who is so extraordinary, so glorious, that we can't even explain how amazing He is, but we get a chance to say some things. Here's what we know. Jesus came and He did all the work beginning to end, so that all those who put their faith in Him will have life eternal with the triune God in heaven. And we get to carry that message. This reminds me of a Casting Crown song that I love and I think summarizes well the meaning of this passage. And I want to leave you with it. The song says this, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. Ever since you rescued me, you gave me a heart to sing. I'm living for the world to see. Nobody but Jesus. That was what Paul was living for. Don't lose heart. See differently. Don't see prison, see privilege. Don't see suffering, see mission. And know that he will empower you for his ends. Let's pray. Lord, we we are so grateful for the glory of this gospel. The mystery of knowing what you have done and accomplished. And I pray that as we worship and adore you now, we would also know that like Paul, we are on mission. We have a purpose, and that purpose is to make you known. I pray that we would not be deterred by our circumstances, but instead we would take this message boldly, proudly, but also humbly to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.